Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. I'm Bishop Heather Shea of the United Palace of Spiritual Arts with today's very special guests, Brother Paul Cunon and Judy Valente. Brother Paul, let's begin with you. Let me ask you the first question, and it's rather simple. Can you tell us a little bit about what religious tradition defines your life? Well, uh, our monastery belongs to the Order of Cistercians, and uh, that was founded in uh, 1098, so we go back quite far. Uh, we follow the, the rule of St. Benedict, so we are in the, the Benedictine tradition. Uh, Benedict was born in 480 and wrote his rule in the early 500s, I would suppose. So um, the um, uh, you might say we are also uh, Trappist in the sense that we belong to the Order of the Strict Observance, as it's called, OCSO. And uh, that was a, a 17th century reform. Uh, where especially what was particular to the uh, Cistercians uh, as it contrasted with the Benedictines was that uh, we emphasized manual labor and the Cistercian reform and also the Trappist reform was to go back to practice of manual labor and um, a more silent way of life. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the the tradition is part of the Roman Catholic Church. Is that correct? Oh, yes, of course. I'm sorry. I should have mentioned that. Yeah, we're, we're Catholic churches. Brother Paul, can you define for us what is a monk and what are we talking about when we speak of monastic life? Well, you know, the, the word monk comes from Greek uh, monos. Uh, one or alone. So a monk is somebody who lives in solitude of uh, one form or another. And uh, when it comes to the Cistercians, we certainly um, take solitude as primary in our observance, but we live our solitude in community. So we have, you know, a, a practice of silence. Uh, we also have communication. So uh, silence and prayer and work are the, uh, you know, almost like the defining uh, um, qualities of a monk's life. So, so would you say that is the objective of a monastic life, the silence and prayer and community? Well, the, the objective of, of the, the monk's life is to um, live close to God. At least that's why I came to the monastery, uh, to live uh, in union with God as far as possible in this world and to, to seek God 
uh, one of the qualities of uh, the rule of St. Benedict, one of the qualities of somebody applying to the monastery is the question, does he really seek God? So if you're not really seeking God, you're not qualified for the monastic life. Um, Judith, you, you're a journalist who has really specialized so much of your work in uh, studying and exploring religious and spiritual traditions and religious and spiritual life. Um, and you've had a long-standing friendship now with Brother Paul and learned a lot from him. Can you tell me as a layperson, as a layperson, um, uh, how do you see the monk's life differing from other forms of religious life and expression? Well, Brother Paul talked about the life of prayer and Cistercians, for example, Trappists don't go out, they don't teach, they don't run hospitals as many religious orders does. I mean, their life is totally dedicated to prayer and seeking God alone. If you go to Brother Paul's monastery and you go into the first entranceway, there's an archway and over it is etched God alone. And I think that says exactly what the monastic life is all about. Uh, so that makes it different that they're not they're not necessarily out in the world, which doesn't mean that they're set that they're they're uninterested in the world. They're very interested in the world. In fact, um, you know, when you go there, one of the first things you think about or I thought about is that the prayers of these monks and these sisters who live in monastic community are what must be holding our world together. Um, somebody's got to be praying for us and holding this crazy, tumultuous world together. And uh, I think the uh, we, we owe a debt of gratitude to the monks and monastic sisters. Brother Paul, um, it's interesting. We've, we've spoken of God already numerous times. You have spent, uh, I understand, well over 60 years of your life living a monastic life. So, so what is it that you're speaking of when you say God? What is what is what is God to you? Well, he, he's he's the undefinable. Um, he's, he's he's sort of the the mystery I move within. Uh, I, I move in, well, almost more like moving in and out of, because you don't always have necessarily have uh, you know a, a thought about God or um, an experience of God, but uh, you have something of an implicit presence of God all the time. And then sometimes, you know, it can move into uh, something of a more positive experience of God um, through prayer or, or, you know, just the silence, the quality of silence that might come upon you in the midst of a meditation is, as it were, a, um, a touch of God. Beautiful. Um, Brother Paul, you've mentioned this a few times. Can you explain what the rule of St. Benedict is? Well, the rule of St. Benedict is written for Cenobites, that is, monks who live in community. And um, it um, it's something that's over 50 chapters, very short chapters. And it pretty well covers the... Uh, you know, the essential qualities of the life, the uh, practice is, is both, it's, it's 
not so much theoretical. There's a little bit of that, but it's more practical. And it, it gets down to things like, uh, you know, how do you eat and, and uh, why you should work and um, how the divine office, uh, the liturgy uh, of the Psalms in church is to be organized. And then, of course, the, the hierarchy, uh, the, the structure of the monastery uh, has to do with um, uh, the abbot, the father, uh, Abba, father. The, so the abbot is the, the superior of the community. And then uh, he also recommends having a council of the uh, wiser heads in the community. And he also recommends a consultation of the whole community. So it's not a strict monarchy. It's more like a, a parliamentary monarchy. And the community uh, has some say, has some voice in what's uh, um, decided, uh, but not the final say, uh, in, in certain instances. But uh, in, in the last analysis, the abbot is the one that can can make the final yes or no in a decision. So that sort of thing, the, the structure of the community, um, the one of the most important spiritual parts of the uh, um, rule of St. Benedict is the uh, chapters on humility. And Judith has spoken beautifully of this, um, the 12 degrees of humility. And starting out with the constant awareness of God, that God is aware of you. And then ending up with uh, the joy of being, you know, uh, free in, in love. That's the 12th degree of humility. So, you know, Renee, Renee yeah. and Jose, a lot of lay people follow the rule of St. Benedict as well. It's, as Brother Paul will tell you, it's not just for people living in, in monasteries, it's a beautiful rule of life that talks about listening, the importance of listening to one another. Humility, as Brother Paul said, community, the building of community and consensus, service and prayer. And there are now more lay associates of monasteries, such as myself, than there are monks and sisters living in monasteries. And a big reason is people rediscovering this rule of St. Benedict. So, so the rule of St. Benedict in many ways gives, gives you the, the guidance of how to structure monastic life. But, um, but in many ways, it is spiritual practice that is at its core. Um, can you speak a little bit, Brother Paul, to what is the place of spiritual practice in monastic life? And maybe even name some of the spiritual practices that you undertake as a Cistercian? Well, uh, primary is the, uh, the, the divine office, the liturgy of the Psalms in, in church. Uh, that's at the core. And that's um, seven times a day we meet together. And, and then, of course, there's the daily mass, which would you, you would say uh, an eighth service. And we begin, at least in our monastery, uh, we begin our prayers at 3.15 in the morning. Mm -hmm. So uh, waking up at that time and beginning your, your prayers, um, 
you are in, in effect keeping vigil because it's the most silent part of the day. We don't really begin speaking until about eight, eight o'clock in the morning. So between 3.15 and 8 o'clock, everybody is very silent. And so, so that silence itself is one of the chief practices. And then uh, there are places in the monastery where you, sh where you should not speak. There are places where you can go to speak. So on the whole, the, the atmosphere of the monastery is very silent. Uh, after vigils, people go in and get their coffee and bread and peanut butter and jelly or whatever. And we're all milling around the coffee machine and picking up things and nobody is speaking to anybody. It's all very silent. And I, I love it really. It's, it's, it's so great to be around a lot of people without, without having to chatter or feel obliged to chatter, just to be oh. sociable. I will I will share with you that I I spent many 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 weeks in um Spencer Massachusetts in um um in a Cistercian monastery and I can remember that the silence was one of the things that I found the most beautiful to be in in with another person to be with other people but in silence where we were just a presence a witness if you will of ourselves and each other, it was something very intimate and very beautiful. Um, I, I I loved it actually. Now people might be surprised to hear we we have no method of meditation. Um, we do have a requirement to spend time meditating. Uh, that's part of the the rule, and it's nothing very excessive. You know, forty five minutes or an hour, something like that. And when you do that, it's pretty much uh, at your own choice. And uh, there's no method taught. Uh, the assumption is that with all the scripture that is being, uh, you know, almost bombarded with every every throughout the day, uh, or put it this way, God is speaking quietly to us throughout the day in the many readings and psalms that we have. And that is what triggers the meditation. That is what should be like the springboard of our meditation. So you don't have to use a whole, it's good to use methods, you know, just to, to, to still the mind. And uh, as a reaction to the verb, verbosity uh, of the liturgy, I like to simply Go out from the from mass, sit down and still my mind, not think of anything, and then just kind of stay with with the mystery of what I've just uh, uh, celebrated in it. Brother Paul, um, can you speak to the place of work in monastic life? Work is essential. Um, that's uh, and specifically a manual labor. Uh, that doesn't mean we, we, there are some people who do secretarial work and uh, things like that. But um, the ideal is everybody should do a little bit of work. I, I'm cook. I've been cooking for about 35 years now, <laughs> off and on. Even the abbot does manual labor. He, uh, Father Elias, uh, likes to go out and cut down tree, dead trees. <laughs> and he's really getting good at it. 
And lately, he's taken to uh, graveling the, the roads, the, the dirt roads, which run through our force and up the knobs. And uh, he, we even uh, acquired a new loader, a very compact, neat little thing, uh, which he has learned how to use. And he's doing a lot of work now. You know, what's really interesting is that we, I've, I find it so fascinating the way in which not only do you believe in work, but you, you understand the dignity of work. And frankly, work done with your hand. We're living in a world that is slowly devaluing that kind of work more and more. And, and it's interesting that you remind us and your life reminds us of the, of the dignity of, of not only work, but manual labor. There's deep dignity in that. Yes, and in fact, the rule of St. Benedict uh, speaks of the instruments with which we work, the tools, as something like the sacred vessels, that we should be careful with the tools we have and uh, keep them clean and things like that, because they are, they are like the vessels of our manual labor. Mm. <laughs> Judith, um... In your perspective, um, what is the place of friendship, friendship, particularly uh, friendship in monastic life? Well, I think it's a it's a it's a very important question. Um, something we talk about in the book is an essay by Saint Alred of Rivol, who says that friendship is a step toward knowledge of God. Other people help bring us to God in our friendships and our relationships. And we help hopefully to bring them to God as well. And, um, you know, Brother Paul and I have a, have a very unique friendship. I'm a married woman, a professional woman. He is a monk. But we, we have a very deep and profound friendship. And I love what St. Alred also says about, you know, true friendship is based on something he calls bene volentias, mutual goodwill. Your, your, your friendship is not what can I get out of this or what can this person do for me? It's not even what can I do for this person, but what can we do for each other? And he says, a true friend becomes a guardian of love, but more importantly, a guardian of the other person's soul. Mm. And I think that's so beautiful that through, through friendship, we add to the soul of the world, if you will. And certainly, you know, if we can be blessed to have a, a friendship like Brother Paul and I have had, which has endured probably a dozen years now, um, that's, that's truly a gift. But Alred said, doesn't, doesn't depend on distance. Friendship doesn't depend on distance either. It's, it's, a, it's a soul connection. I love that phrase, a guardian of another person's soul. That certainly defines the friendships, the deepest and most important friendships of my life. Defines my friendship with you, Renee. Seriously. You've been guardian of my soul. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's magnificent. Um, well, I think thank Brother you. Paul has been that way for me, and I hope he would say that in some ways I've expanded his soul as well. Oh, you've helped me to grow. Um, brother Paul, um, there, there are many values 
um, and, uh, and virtues that are said to be particularly powerful in monastic life, values that in some respects define monastic life. I'd like to explore some of them with you, because um, this is really in many ways the heart and soul of our conversation. So can you speak first and foremost of what is the value of hospitality? That is a virtue that is, um, that is uh, exhibited and, 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 uh, and lived um, in many monastic communities. I certainly have experienced it when I went to Spencer, Massachusetts, to St. Joseph's Abbey. Can you speak to the place of hospitality in monastic life? Well, yes. Um, here again, the rule of St. Benedict says that uh, guests should be received as Christ. And so the first thing you do uh, with the guest is to go to church and pray with them. I wouldn't say this is formally uh, observed nowadays, but we have because we have so many guests coming. But um, the idea is that you receive them as Christ, and then um, the um, uh, hopefully you are there to to. Assist them to enter into to the monastic atmosphere, into into the spirit of the community, into what we have, uh, what we have been cultivating, what we are, uh, ourselves are benefiting from. Hopefully, will be something for the guests to to also uh, nourish, be nourished on. Um, the um, the the call to hospitality is really something that's laid upon the monastery rather than upon the individual. In fact, uh, the ordinary monk should only have very brief contacts with the monks. Uh, I can't say that I've been observing that very carefully myself, but uh, the idea is that, you know, they come to the, get the uh, reception area, what you might call the gatehouse. There is a brother there who should be uh, mature enough to be able to give an answer uh, and to, um, you know, welcome the person. Otherwise, you know, we the rest of the monks are, you know, keeping a solitary life, uh, separation from the world. He might be assigned to be guest master. We have a retreat house here. Uh, it can accommodate uh, 40 people. And uh, for the most part, it's full. Uh, as a cook, I have to cook for the, the guests as well as for the community. And we have a chaplain and a, re a retreat uh, director. The, um, so, you know, it's, it's organized well enough. And then the other thing is they can participate in our prayer. There's a guest section to which they go and are seated and uh, can recite the psalms with us. And so, um, in addition to hospitality, there's also the the value of solitude. You mentioned that um, most of the monks are living the solitary life while someone is is hosting the guests. So, can you can you speak to the importance of that? To the importance of solitude. Oh yes, yeah, solitude certainly. Well, you, you know the the um, the ideal goes back to the Desert Fathers. Uh, that is like the third century, fourth century. Uh, where uh, Christian women and men would, you know, 
leave their community, it might just be a village on the edge of you know a wilderness area, and go off and build a cabin someplace in the woods uh, or up in the in the sand dunes. Um, and live there uh, a life more focused on uh, prayer and on contemplation and uh, and just suffering the deprivations of, of uh, living alone. So uh, it's still elemental to the way we live. Uh, solitude is like the space that is the interior uh, wilderness in which you encounter God um, and, and struggle to, with yourself to overcome your own, you know, bad inclinations and cultivate your good inclinations. Uh, a lot of that is just getting over being so worried about everything or getting over being uh, irked irked by somebody else's small uh, faults, or, or they may not even be faults, they just might be habits. Uh, so you, one thing, you have to overcome dislikes, and you also have to overcome likes, because you cannot be controlled by your likes. Uh, what we need to be controlled with, by is our love, our charity. And that is the basis of our relationship. So if you don't like somebody, well, that's not important. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to like somebody, but you certainly, you have to relate to them as, as Christ and as, as a brother. So that's, um, you know, solitude is kind of like the environment in which that can take place. Um, it's, um, uh, it's a place where God can speak to you, or you're free enough from worries and from, uh, you know, uh, preoccupations, whether they're worries or not, you know, you can, you can get overactive about things. And you need some solitary time where you just rest. Uh, you, you let the, the, the grace of the moment fill your imagination and heart and uh, just abide with that. So that, that's my experience of solitude. I love going out to the woods myself. I, uh, walking in the woods is one of my favorite things to do. As, as Judith knows, I mean, we've taken walks in the woods before. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, or just taking a book out somewhere under a tree and sitting down and spending an afternoon. Uh, reading or and feeling the breezes and listening to the sounds of the birds and the katydids uh, uh, or the, the locusts in the daytime, katydids at night. So um, solitude is one of the great blessings of our life. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea of the United Palace of Spiritual Arts, here with today's very special guests, Paul Cunon, who is a cook, poet, photographer, and well-known author and journalist, Judy Valente. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back. We now return to our open heart conversation on the way of the monk with Brother Paul and prominent journalist Judy Valente. Brother Paul, um, right next to solitude is another value that is of deep importance to monastic life, and that is silence. Silence. And I'd like to hear your understanding of the importance of silence to monastic existence. Well, silence is both uh, external and internal. And now, when I came to the monastery, there, there was a very strict uh, practice of silence. I would not hesitate to call it a, a cult of silence. <laughs> in the sense that every little infraction of silence was something that would be noticed and brought to your attention. Um, I, I think that became a, a rather exaggerated. And uh, when Merton uh, began writing his books, uh, it's thanks to him we have developed a culture of silence, not a cult of silence. So this a, a deep appreciation of interior silence is really at the heart of it all. And that's the important thing. And uh, we still practice that, the, the, the rule of thumb we have is that we prefer silence to conversation. You know, when, when you're with somebody, uh, preference is given to silence rather than to, you know, conversation. Now at work, for instance, you know, you have to talk some, you know, have to make arrangements for work and how to do things. And, um, and there's some conversation, it's, it's pretty relaxed and free. But, you know, I would say three quarters of the time we're, pretty, we're working together in silence and nobody feels uncomfortable about that. Everybody's focusing on what they're doing. There might be three or four of us in the kitchen at, at a time and everybody just goes about in silence doing what they're supposed to do. So that's, uh, you know, that's the exterior silence and that's important. And uh, I'm glad we're, you know, we're making something. Uh, we all will be working on an assembly line uh, uh, this time of the year. We begin uh, pre-packing. We, we package mm -hmm. the uh, fruitcake and the cheese that we make, getting it ready to be shipped out around Christmas time. So there might be a dozen of us on an assembly line doing that. Well, everybody's keeping silence. And it's, it's great. Uh, Judith, before we move on to another value, um, as a layperson um, who's learned so much from monastic life, how do you interpret, how do you see, how do you define the importance of silence? Well, I think that's one of the reasons you see so many lay people becoming interested in the rule of St. Benedict, visiting monasteries in, in absolute droves, as Brother Paul can tell you, um, Gethsemane is booked now well into the end of the year with guests. And um, I, I think people are, are yearning for a sense of silence because there's just too much noise in our world. And it's not just the noise, mechanical noise. It's, it's the noise, what I call the white noise of social media and email and texts and all the rest of the stuff that, that just bombards us all the time. And to some extent, they have that in the monastery, too, but to a much, much 
more restrictive sense. And I remember thinking during the height of the pandemic, do you remember when, when we all were supposed to stay home and social distance, not, not have contact with other people, not go to the theater, not go to bars. And, and people were just, you know, at a certain point, people just came out and protested against this. <laughs> and I think part of it, some of it was, you know, they thought we needed to get the economy going. But part of it was people just don't know how to be alone with themselves. They don't they don't know how to be silent. And I think the pandemic, for all of its tragedy and and certainly inconvenience, um, has has perhaps taught some of us the importance of being alone with ourselves or learning how to be alone with ourselves and learning how to be silent. Yeah, absolutely. And that that makes me uh, think of the next value that we like to explore when, you know, you're being told what to do for everyone. Um, Brother Paul, can you speak to the value of obedience in the monastic life? Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm one of the most obedient monastery monks in the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, obedience is very important. And, it, you know, it's it's one of the vows we take. Uh, obedience is uh, uh, to the advent of death. But it's not just the abbot, though. It's the, whole, it's the rule. It's the community. It's, you know, the, the, the monastic way of life. It's something, you know, we, we pursue and follow. Um, the purpose of obedience is freedom, really. Um, primarily to get you free of yourself, uh, here, of your likes and dislikes, again, or of simply leaving all the decisions up to yourself. Uh, we're, we're pursuing the, the will of God. Uh, what we want to do ultimately is to live in union with the will of God. And so, you know, the rule and the uh, uh, guidance of the abbot and of the community are tools for that. It, it's like part of the... Um, the the outreach of God has God has an outreach to us, and God has that outreach through the abbot and through the the brothers that we live with or sisters if you're a sister, and um, and even friends to some extent. Uh, I I think you know the these people that God brings into your life are another outreach of God. And, for me, an important outreach. And so uh, I, I, I always want to flow with uh, where God seems to be uh, teasing me along or, or sweeping me along or simply, um, you know, coaxing me somehow or other. It, it, within the monastery, it's rather clear, um, you know, what, what the, the guidelines are. Um, and, you know, unless... Um, Unless you have darn good reason, you know you you do that. That's you, you commit yourself to to that way of life, and when you take your vows, but it's it, you know it's it's not so much like a march as like a dance. You know you you have to know how to to be, to be limber and how to move with the, the little nudges and and the, the the flow of the music and and the rhythm and, and all those things really make for the play of monastic life. 
Renee, it might be important to remember the, the Latin root of obedience is obedere, to listen. And, you know, we need, we need to listen to other people. We need to listen to their messages to us. Um, you know, sometimes I don't see myself that, as clearly as, say, my husband sees me. Um, or my friends, or Brother Paul sees me. So it's that mutual listening, I think, that's that's an important aspect of monastic obedience, which which then flows over into, to, into our lives in the secular world as well. Absolutely. So, Brother Paul, we've explored some of the foundational values of the monastic life. Are there any other values that you would say are of great importance for a healthy and, and mature um, monk's life? Well, uh, poverty is elemental. Uh, we don't make an explicit vow of poverty like many other religions. We, uh, we have three vows, that is obedience, and uh, conversion of, of life. And that includes the both celibacy and poverty, uh, or generally speaking, the monastic way of life. You follow the monastic way of life. And so poverty, well, you know, ultimately, I, I don't own the computer that I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in front of talking to you through. Uh, and if they they want to take it away from me, you know, I have no claim to it. Uh, and, and it might be a big relief if I really. <laughs> so uh, we're grateful you still have it today. <laughs> yeah, still have it today. I, I don't even I don't even own the shirt on my back. All these things are given to me. Uh, they are provided by the monastery, and. Uh, you know, I should be always be willing to share things with other people. So, you know, there's a certain level. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, there's different degrees of poverty. Now, you know, we we have our own economy. Um, the, the ideal of our order is that the monks should live by the work of their own hands. Now, people donate things to us, but uh, that pretty much just goes to our own donation uh, uh, system. You know, we, we have we have a charity budget. People give to us and we give to other people in, in return. Um, but we do make our own living with the uh, sales of the fruitcake and the, and the fudge. And then, you know, there's a retreat house brings in some money and the gift shop uh, brings in some others, books and monastic items. Um, all that is, you know, providing us with a pretty good way of life, really. Uh, we're, we're not lacking. Uh, what you need is simply to live a life where you've got things that are elemental, what's necessary, um, without, you know, going into luxury or into excess of any sort. But there's the interior poverty, which, you know, it's the harder thing. And that's almost seamless with solitude. Um, and and the, the interior life, uh, it can be very, um, and rather 
empty, uh, not exactly alone, but not with the kind of warm, familiar feeling that you might have in, in a, a relationship. Um, there is like a staying in the in the the mystery of God, which is something beyond human ken, and yet you know that's where you belong. And so to to be in that kind of interior helplessness and and to abide with that is a, a really a, a real kind of poverty. And in the process, you begin to sense interiorly what a lot of people have to experience exteriorly when they really don't have the necessities that way. Um, and I think that's where our interior poverty is very important because with that, we can share you know, the poverty of most of the people on, on the earth. I have a sense that what we try to run away from by not remaining in solitude and in silence is that poverty. The irony is that it's so scary. It's so, it is so empty that we run away from it all our lives. And yet the irony is that as a monk, part of your privilege is to, part of what you seek to do is to kind of confront it and live inside of it. Live inside what uh, the, that emptiness. I think you're uh, getting at something that attracts lay people to monastic life and to monasteries is, is the authenticity that we often see in the monks which springs from what Brother Paul just described. Um, many of us go through life not, not really knowing who we are. <laughs> and I think the monks know who they are. They spend, they spend a lot of time with God and alone with themselves. And I think it's something that we all outside of a monastery can learn from them about reaching our true self as well. Yeah, that's putting it beautifully, Judith. Uh. So in other words, part of a monk's life is to confront reality as reality truly is and live inside of that reality without running away from it. Yes. Yes, and, and they're not living living in the footsteps of what someone else thinks they should be doing. Um, you know, so, so often we, we, we become the, peop the person that we think others want us to be. And I think monastic life is a way of stripping away, stripping away at that. And at least as, as Brother Paul has described it to me, and I, I witnessed it in him. And it's something that I think we too need to strive to do, those of us living in the, in the secular world. Brother Paul, what inspired you to become a monk? Um, it's my understanding that you entered the monastery around the age of 17, 18 years old. Um, I, you were raised Catholic, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Your family was not particularly happy to hear that you wanted to enter monastic life. That's my understanding. So uh, here you are, 17, 18 years old. 
entering into this remarkably unique way of life. Your family was not necessarily 100% supportive, I understand. And yet you've lived that life for 60 years plus. So what's inspired you in the beginning and what continues to inspire you to stay so deeply committed to such a unique way of life? Well, it was the love of God, mm. I hope. Now, you know, there's always mixed motives with, with regard to everything. And uh, the whole life is a matter of purifying your love of God. So I, I had this intuition of faith um, that if I step into this life, it's a place where I can live close to God. Um, I can, as it were, be uh, searching for God. And over the years, I've just discovered that uh, uh, not only do I live in God, but God lives in me. And I, I not only am I seeking God, but God is seeking me. And uh, I didn't realize all of that when I entered the monastic life. But I was very inspired by the uh, imitation of Christ, uh, which is a you know a 14th century, 15th century classic uh, devotion. And uh, also, I read the Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton, and uh, that sort of showed me that uh, a person could be a, a a modern man and still live the monastic life. And the only monastery I knew about at the time was the Abbey of Gethsemane. So here I am. I, you know, I struck the bullseye on the first shot. <laughs> <laughs> Many of our viewers and listeners may not know who Thomas Merton was. Um, um, can you tell us a little bit about Thomas Merton, arguably the most famous Cistercian of the 20th century, maybe of any century? Well, for me, he's not the most famous Cistercian. He was my novice master. That is, I had him for my spiritual director and instructor, and uh, he was just another one of the monks. Uh, <laughs> so many of the monks treated him that way, uh, and they kind of knew on the sidelines he wrote these books, and some people read them and some people didn't. But uh, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, his, his books have, be, have uh, perdured uh, they've endured in print since he died 50 years ago, well, more than 50 years ago. And of course, uh, they, one of the marks of a classic is that it never goes out of print. Well, there's so darn many books by Thomas Merton that are still in print. And the, the Seven Story Mountain seems to be a, uh, you know, a centr central to that. Uh, it's a classic that uh, in some ways is out of date. But it continues to inspire uh, even young people when they do read it. Uh, it's kind of an icon. Uh, it, it, it communicates the, the mystery of the vocation that we have. So Merton, you know, was a spiritual writer. Um, and of course, you know, as, as his love expanded, his interest expanded. So, uh, you know, he be, began writing on not just monastic life, but uh, monastic life as you might find it in other religions like Buddhism mm -hmm. or um, the spirituality of Islam, the Sufism. And uh, the uh, 
deep spiritual spirituality of the Jewish tradition, the Hesychasm. And then, of course, uh, as you know, the the whole issue of nuclear armaments became so critical, and as the civil rights movement you know, became more intense, he was very much aware of this. He he was he had a very expansive mind. He was always pushing the boundaries. And so he began writing on those issues too. So he he's ended up being really a voice of the 20th century. Without a doubt, he's one of my most beloved spiritual writers. One of his major contributions, um, and I don't think Brother Paul mentioned this, was that he 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 indicated that lay people, people outside of monasteries, can also live a contemplative life. Yes, uh, a contemplative prayer life and a contemplative life, a life of being attuned to God in the everyday world. And I, I think that was one of his that makes for his enduring presence as well. And Judith, that that leads me to my next question. Um, what inspired you to develop this friendship with Brother Paul? You spoke so beautifully about it earlier. And how did it begin? I was sent as a reporter for PBS TV to do um, a, a retrospective on Thomas Merton. It was the 40th death anniversary of Thomas Merton. So it would have been um, uh, 2008. And I went and met Brother, I, I asked if I could interview a monk at Gethsemane who knew Thomas Merton, and I was directed to Brother Paul. Um, I, think, I think it was a, a chemistry thing, but also we bonded over our mutual love of poetry we both write poetry. We both have 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 po poetry collections uh, published, and um, we began to to write. Believe it or not, a Japanese haiku to each other, a three line poem to each other, every day. We did that for three years because Brother Paul writes a haiku, this three line poem, usually about nature or something about the sacred and the ordinary. He writes it as part of his meditation practice. And, I was so intrigued by that that I asked him if we could start exchanging haiku, and we did. And, and that became a book that we worked on called The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed. And the book is, you know, each, each section of the book begins with a three-line haiku, and then there's a three-paragraph meditation, a daily meditation for busy people like yourselves and myself to be able to dip in and out of in our busy lives. And we, we wrote that book, but also, you know, we began a correspondence over those years as well. I mean, I visited Brother Paul many times at Gethsemane, but, um, you know, because his, his uh, forays outside of the monastery are restricted. And of course I was working full-time as a journalist. I couldn't get to Gethsemane all the time. We began a correspondence and and that correspondence that we began basically almost immediately. I mean, I would say from 2009 on then became the basis of our new book, How to Live a Monk and a Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship. So it's been uh, it's been an enduring friendship, but also the kind that uh, St. Alred wrote about which which is based on 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 mutual caring and mutual goodwill 
Lovely. And and so what would you say, Judith, is that a major lesson or the major lesson that you've learned from Brother Paul? Well, I can tell you when, when I interviewed him for PBS, he said something that really stuck in my mind because I'm, I often say I, I, I suffer from a dual diagnosis, workaholism and overachieverism. And I asked him, I asked him in that interview, what's the purpose of the monastic life in the modern world? And he said, the purpose of the monastic life in the modern world is to show you don't have to have a purpose. <laughs> the purpose of life is to live your life. And that was very freeing for someone who believes, believed and probably still believes that my, my value is in, is in what I do, is in, is in how much I accomplish. Um, and he's taught me that I can relax, that it's okay just to live my life. And, and I have a purpose. My purpose is that God placed me here on this earth. And, and there's, there's value in that. There's value in that, whether I win the Pulitzer Prize or, or publish 10 more, 10 more books, I have a value as a human being. I have something to offer as a human being, irregardless of, of what the world says about my achievements. And I think he gave me an ability to relax about myself and to, um, I, I think it was, he freed me. He freed me to, to say, you know, it's okay if I'm not at a hundred percent every day. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's okay just to be. Well, uh, our time together has come to an end, and I really want to thank you so very much, Brother Paul, for taking time uh, off your busy schedule to be with us. It's 30 with hours. Judith, uh, you're phenomenal. Thank you so very, very much. It's been an honor to have you here in Open Heart Conversations. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for bringing me together again with my friend, Brother Paul. <laughs> yes, it's good to be together. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Renee, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to all our viewers and listeners at Open Heart Conversation, thank you so very much for sharing your time with us. We look forward to uh, spending more time with you in the future. Take care. You've been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. 